Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. When the King James Version says Adam knew his wife Eve, that was the Hebrew word yada. It had a broad range of meaning, all the way from simply knowing something to knowing somebody very closely and very intimately. So to use that, Adam knew his wife Eve, definitely implied Adam made love to his wife Eve. Those translations who say Adam knew his wife Eve were preserving something that was very important to the story that is missing when they translate that into something more modern by just saying Adam made love to his wife Eve. Now, Think about it. Our culture is not comfortable in using that kind of language. Would you just imagine, and I'm not trying to be flippant about this. I'm just trying to make a point of how uncomfortable we would be if there were a couple in our church that were uh, suddenly announcing they were expecting a child. And I brought them to the platform. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, he made love to her. And they're going to have a baby. And you would say, why did you have to say that? We all know how this happens. So see, we're not comfortable with that. And so we find it strange when we read that phrase in there, Adam made love to Eve, and and we're saying, so why the extra detail? Well, it's it's because if you keep it in the original, Adam, yada, Eve, Adam knew Eve, that to the ancients who read this word yada, they were immediately reminded of something else that was important in knowledge. They were reminded of the tree of knowledge. Now, the the connection does not work well in English. And we might struggle to say, I don't see the significance of it. But it meant something to the ancients when they read and Moses chose to use this word yada, which he didn't have to use that. There were other ways in that language of expressing the same thing. But Moses was not interested, basically, in informing you how Adam and Eve came to have a child. That was not his purpose in writing that. His purpose in writing that was to reflect back with that single word, yada, to the crisis point that caused them to be in the position that they were. So they would read yada and they would immediately be reminded of the tree of knowledge that we can never quite get away from. That's the reason that it reads like it does because other translators fail to recognize the significance of the word new or yada and translated it into something else that we would recognize but then we're going, what? what's the purpose? Why say that? They missed the purpose with the NIV and with the NLT and with the New English translation. And there's a number of them that missed it. So if you go back to your King James and you read new, then you can also go back to tying that back to the word knowledge. You know, they wanted knowledge. They thought that was going to unlock all kinds of great things for them. But it was their quest for knowledge and their attainment of that knowledge that put them in a very sad situation. So that all made sense to the ancients as they read that. Now, as Adam and Eve 
have a child. Eve gives birth to a man. I've already told you Eve was very preoccupied with having a child. It was only Adam and Eve. Now, if they didn't have children, that humans were going to be wiped out. They were going to be extinct. So she had this maternal instinct, this drive, I must have a child. She was desperate to have a child. So when she had Cain, she cries out, I have produced a man. And in the way that's reading in the original language, it's almost as though Eve is taking a lot of credit, except she tags onto the end with the Lord's help. It's like, look what I've done, and the Lord helped me do it. But of course, the important thing is that she did say, with the Lord's help. Setting the example that no matter what we do, and it, you know, isn't childbirth kind of a natural thing? How, how many of us would think that I have given, I mean the, the women, I have given birth to a child and the Lord helped me. We, we don't really think of it in terms of the Lord being there, but he's there for everything. He helps you through all things. And Eve was particularly inspired to say, with the Lord's help, because she knew that the Lord had already declared, it's going to be a, a tough go for you to have children. It's going to be a near-death experience. It'll be in great anguish and anxiety. You're going to have children. So when she went through this, the first woman ever, not only to give birth, but in that birth to experience this near-death experience and when she comes through it and she actually lives it's like well thank God he his promise was true I would be spared it was going to be difficult but I lived so she's making a great proclamation here I have a child I actually survived this experience thanks be to God and it was a it was a glimmer of hope in a very sad situation as Adam and Eve were still smarting from their failure and their expulsion from the garden here they are out in the new barren cursed world and, and uh, Eve very deeply concerned about perpetuating the human race and having a, a child. It's a glimmer of hope. Maybe somehow they can make it. So a glimmer of hope comes. Now Eve had many children. You have to understand that. One of the questions we often get when we go back to the creation is... Who did Cain marry? Cain went and found his wife in the land of Nod. Well, now, where did those people come from? This is, this is very simple. Adam and Eve had a lot of children. And those children moved around. And Cain married his relative. He married his sister. Or he married his niece. He, he married somebody who came from Adam and Eve. There, there were not many Adam and Eves starting many generations of people in many different... It's just Adam and Eve. So as they, they grew and expanded, Cain went and found a relative. We would call it incest. Today, doesn't work. But in that day, in populating the world, it was absolutely fundamentally necessary to do that. Adam lived to be 930 years old. Now, if that's any indication of how long some of these people were living, it'd be a lot of time for a lot of people to be born and uh, uh, develop deeper than just sister, develop into nieces and nephews. So this, this place was populating in the hundreds of years that they had for this to happen. So Eve is beginning to realize the promise of God. And the promise of God to them when they were in the garden is that they would bear children. God blessed them and promised them, you will bear many children. 
replenish the earth or fill the earth up. And in spite of the fact that Adam and Eve failed, God's promise didn't fail. Now, you know some of God's promises are contingent. They are conditional. If you do something, God will bless you. But some of his promises are not conditional. Some of his promises he's going to fulfill regardless of what you do. Some of his promises we will receive even though we are great failures. This happens to be one of those promises that was not conditional. He said, you're going to bear many children. You're going to fill the earth. And in spite of their failure, which I'm sure Adam and Eve must have wondered if God would continue to be faithful to his promise when they were not faithful to him, they discovered that God is faithful. We might be liars. We might be failures. We might be unfaithful. But God is faithful and true to his word. Cain is born. Abel is born. And this story fast forwards from the mere fact that two boys are born into a scene where they are now adult men. And they have chosen their profession. And Abel is a, a herdsman. He's growing livestock. Cain chooses to continue in his father's profession, tilling the soil, growing things. So if you have ever wondered who had the more noble profession, it would actually be Cain. This is what God instructed Adam to do. You're going to plow the soil. You're going to struggle to bring forth something to eat. That's what Cain followed. Abel's the one that raised animals. And they both brought an offering to the Lord as an act of worship. Specifically, what Abel brought was fat portions from the firstlings of his flock. So he evidently butchered the firstlings, took the fat portions, and brought them. Cain brought fruit from his garden. And to cut to the chase, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, and he rejected Cain's. At this point, we start theorizing why. But notice in the story, it doesn't say why. All of this is speculation on our part. The stock answer that most of you would give today, if you attempted to give an answer, is to suggest that Abel's was a blood sacrifice. And Cain's was not. God was pleased with blood sacrifice. But the problem with that is that is derived from our retrospective understanding of the whole sacrificial system that the children of Israel eventually would come to practice that would culminate in a blood sacrifice uh, of Jesus as being the ultimate end-all sacrifice. So retrospectively, we look back and we say, well, it must be. Because Abel offered a blood sacrifice, Cain did not. But that really is not supported by any other evidence in Scripture. They both brought sacrifices, and the Hebrew word, uh, which once again, I'm so horrible at trying to get that Hebrew going. Mincha. And I think I hit it again. I'm getting better. I practice all the time. It sounds horrid. 
Mincha. It's described elsewhere in the Bible, in, in Leviticus chapter 2, uh, Mincha is a grain offering. It often accompanies animal sacrifices, but sometimes it's a grain offering all by itself. It is a, a sacrifice of honor to the Lord. You see, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, were not making sin sacrifices. That's where the blood sacrifice is important. They were making honor sacrifices. They were worshiping him. And in the book of, of Leviticus, the minka but I'm going to get a hard K there just to get by this. The mincha was an, uh, an acceptable, honorable sacrifice to the Lord. Both of them brought a reasonable sacrifice to the Lord. In the book of Leviticus, they brought first fruits. They brought vegetables. They brought fruit to the Lord. It was accepted. It was an honorable sacrifice to him. So in light of what we understand from the rest of Scripture, we're not really particularly... Uh, persuaded that the real difference between Abel and Cain was his was blood, his was only fruit, therefore God was not happy, and God was telling Cain, go find an animal and slay it, because Cain really had the opportunity to bring of what he had. Now, you have to understand, God is interested in you giving of what you have, not of what you don't have. If it's an honor to the Lord, if you're going to give an offering and you don't have much, but you give of what you have... God gets all excited about that. The widow who came and just gave a couple of mites, she just, just pennies. She gave of what she had. And it wasn't judged by, well, you should have given something different. You should have given something you don't have. No, God honors what you have as a gift of honor to him. Both brought the mincha. Both brought out of the bounty of what they possessed. The second thing we have to consider, it's highly unlikely... This, this rejection had anything to do with first fruits. As though Abel gave of the firstborn and Cain failed to give of the first fruits. Because those details are not given in the story. So we're making some big assumptions here to try and make them, our pre, make, make, them make sense to our preconceived ideas of why this whole thing failed. So the theories of blood sacrifice and the theories of first fruit sacrifice as pertains to Cain and Abel simply don't have any scriptural support. They're just very popular theories, but they don't have any scriptural basis for those. Cain was rejected by God for some undetermined reason. Now, I just got through dismissing silly theories, but I'm going to give you a theory. I think it's more plausible that the sacrifice was rejected not because of the items that were given, but because of the heart condition of the giver. And I think you see that borne out as we read the rest of the story. Something was wrong with Cain. Now, could it be there was something wrong with his fruit? If there's something wrong with Cain, there could have been something wrong with his fruit. If there's something wrong with Cain, it could have been a basket of the rotten fruit he was going to throw out anyway. That's possible. But it all goes back to the giver. It goes back to the heart of the one doing the sacrifice, regardless of what showed up in his basket when he came. Even if Cain would have brought the excellent fruit, there was something wrong with Cain's heart. And that is revealed in the story. And Cain makes this sophisticated plan. He is so angry. He is so jealous. He wants to kill Abel. Now, 
he, we could probably process if Cain was just mad at God and wanted to get back at God. But this jealousy thing makes you insane. I don't know if you've got problems with jealousy in your life or in your marriage. But I can tell you, jealousy will make you do foolish things. It, it'll put crazy thoughts in your head. My wife and I have never struggled with jealousy in our marriage. She gets a lot of attention. I just, I, I just glad that I have somebody that is so attractive. She didn't have to worry about it because nobody wants me anyway. So we don't have a problem with jealousy. We're very comfortable. We've not spent any, wasted any time in our marriage suspiciously wondering, where were you? What were you doing? Why were you talking to them? What's going on? It just, it just doesn't, we're so blessed. We're just so blessed. We just killed that a long time ago. It just doesn't have any place. But jealousy does crazy things. It makes you do crazy things. It makes Cain, who is rejected by God, want to kill his brother. And he makes this, this sophisticated plan. Let's, I'll, I'll, I'll tell him, let's go out to the field. And I'll get him out there in the field. And then when he's not looking, I'll nail him. And I'll cover him up. Like when they go home for supper, they won't notice Abel's missing. There's got to be an explanation here someday. And God is, of course, the first one that investigates. In Cain doing this, one of the things that Cain did that was a, is of the biggest concern is he showed great disrespect for the family. That's really a very significant component behind this whole story. No honor for the family. No regard for brother. Certainly no regard for Adam and Eve. Jealousy driving him in rage. To totally disrespect the family. And if, if this is at the root of, of the first murder, the, the, the first grave sin recorded in Scripture after Adam and Eve fell and were expelled from the garden, this, this murder. If at the root of this is this disrespect, this lack of honor for the family, then I think the enemy discovered he was on to something. If he can su succeed in getting people to operate without honor for others he can get them to do about anything if you have no respect for authority it's no telling what you might do if you have no respect for your spouse it's no telling what you might do to them if you have no respect for your family who can describe what you may do to your family that lack of respect and lack of honor is behind the most heinous sins and crimes that have ever been committed by man. And when we're looking at the breakdown in the very early stages, the breakdown of the family unit, brothers are supposed to have respect and honor for the family and for brothers and for sisters. You don't kill them. 
I mean, I know in growing up that that's been an idle threat. You get mad, I'm going to kill you. They don't really mean it. I raised three boys. There were tense times in our family. There were times when a couple of them were at each other's throats. And you know how they just fight? I put them in a room. I said, don't come out until one of you has vanquished the other. They got in there. They didn't want to fight anymore. They just kind of sat and looked at each other. No, no, man. You've been at each other. I have been standing between you. I've been pulling you apart. You've been wanting to kill each other. Go in there and do it. Let's get it done. See, they don't really want to do that. Just big talk. But Cain crossed the threshold, killed his brother. No honor, no respect for the family. And since I, I suggest that the enemy has discovered that this lack of honor, this lack of respect is key to getting people to do his bid and calling, then I suggest to you that that's been a major thrust of the enemy's efforts in this day and age is to break down the honor and the respect for authority and for the family and the family is under attack today, I guess, to a greater degree, at least as great a degree as ever, if not a greater degree than ever before. And just off the top of your head, you can think of many ways that the family is under attack. Abortion is the family under attack. Divorce is the family under attack. Same-sex marriage is the family under attack. The disregard that children have for parents. I am appalled at what I see sometimes in the behavior of children and how they talk to their parents. I'm appalled because my father would not have beat us. I want to be careful in describing, but he, he was a stern disciplinarian. He would not allow me to sass him. Now, as a child, when I realized what the boundaries were, that I did not sass my mother and my father. I, I took it out on all my playmates to get the sass out of me. But I could not touch those two. Because I understood that, I had to choose my words so carefully when I talked to them. Because I had to think ahead, is this going to sound sassy? Honest, honest, I, I'm not... I, I'm not exaggerating whatsoever. I would think of a question, and I didn't, I didn't have to preface this or a statement with saying, now, I'm not sassing. Honestly, I'm not. I just want to know. Please don't let them misinterpret what I'm saying. Because I knew that that was totally unacceptable in our family. I had to honor them. I could not sass them. I could not talk back to them. I couldn't call them names. I had to show and demonstrate honor and respect to them. We're losing that sense of honor and respect for authority. And the family is disintegrating, falling apart before our eyes. It started with Cain. And it has not taken a vacation since.
Today, about 64% of children live in a two-parent home. Now, that sounds like that's encouraging. More than half, 64% live in a two-parent home. And even though that is a majority, the fact is, in the 1950s, late 1950s, 93% of the children lived in a two-parent home. Can you see where the trend is going? We're losing the family. We're not totally there, but you can see the trend. The family is falling apart. We're losing the two-parent home. And then you have to consider, what do they consider a two-parent home? Because sometimes it's a broken family. They've got two new parents. They've got one new parent. They got, and those play, take those into, in, into account. And the percentages of those living with their both biological mother and father are even far less. The family's under attack. Now, we run a daycare. I am deeply conflicted in running a daycare. Because on the one hand, we're providing a service that we have control over. We incorporate ministry into our child care. We tell them about Jesus. We teach them how to pray. This is some things they will never get at some daycares. On the other hand, the part I'm conflicted about is we are also involved in something where the parents are no longer raising their children. And that deeply disturbs me. We watch as parents will drop their kids off who will be in somebody else's hands for up to 12 hours a day. Some stranger hears the baby say their first word. Some stranger sees the baby take its first step. Some stranger has to console the child when it falls and gets a boo-boo. Hold the child and love it, but eventually you have to put the child down and care for the others. It doesn't get the motherly and fatherly attention that it deserves. And I'm conflicted. We see the children who wait anxiously at the end of the day for mom and dad to show up. And you hear the little voices, my mommy's coming to pick me up. My daddy's coming. You know what's important to those, child, those children? It's not important to them that they're in a daycare. It's important to them, where's my mom? Where's my dad? And all they hope for all day long is they're coming to get me. And it breaks my heart. We don't have the things in place to reinforce the strength of the family like we had years ago. Your child doesn't care one flip about more toys or more money. They care about having you in their life. If you're working to make life better for your child because you can buy them more things, you are not providing what your child needs most. You are the only one who can minister the things to that child they need most desperately. And if you don't like that and you want to send me down the road, I'll go preach it somewhere else. But I believe with all my heart that is the gospel truth. Children were not designed to be pets we raise. Children were designed to be discipled by their parents. That's why we have a mess today.
my wife and I just to get myself in further trouble than I'm already in. Made it by, scraped by on a single miserly pastor's income for years. So my wife could be there for my children. And when it came Christmas time, we got in that vicious cycle of having to charge Christmas just to give something to our children and work all year long to pay it off so I could charge the next Christmas. We didn't have a lot of money. We had very little. But they had a mom. They had a parent that was there. And we invested in them. And today... As much as a human man can know anything, I know that my children are saved. They're born again and they're headed to heaven. And there's no money that was worth missing that kind of confirmation in our children's lives. God rejected Cain's Sacrifice, his offering. And Cain took it out on his brother because he had no honor, no respect. You think that's shocking? Abortion clinics sanitize the way we are destroying the family. But we become so accustomed to it, we don't even lose our appetite when we talk about it. Children, babies violently ripped from the womb. Sometimes still living outside the womb. And murdered by the attending physician to stop that life. And we don't care. Who cares? We hear cases of parents violently abusing and murdering their children. We hear cases of children murdering their parents. No honor. In the recent news, it was just heart-wrenching. It was stomach-churning. As a young boy and a young girl, the boy murdered the little child. The girl videotaped it. It was the girl's sister. And they wanted to put it on videotape and capture the murder as he watched her boyfriend murder her little sister. Think, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, what have we come to? It starts when Cain is angry with God and says, I'll kill my brother for it. And we read it like it's a, a distant story that so what? Everybody knows Cain murdered Abel. Do you understand how serious this was? Not only that, but he did it without remorse. God comes and says, where's your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I supposed to be my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. You're missing the whole point. You are your brother's keeper. That's where he got it wrong. That's where the heart of Cain was totally wrong. And God, you can't fool God. You can't play games with God. God responds to Cain and says, Don't you understand? 
The blood of Abel cries out from the earth. I don't you listen. Can't you even hear it? Are you so dulled by your sins? You can't hear the scream of his blood from the dirt. What have you done? Like father, like son. If you look at these two stories, you see the similarities between what Adam did and what Cain did. It's all there. God looks for Adam. God comes looking. What have you done? Where's your brother? Your blood, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. We're, we're reminded of Adam who transgressed against God and God arrives with probing questions. Where are you, Adam? What have you done? How did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? And in a similar way, God comes and puts all these questions to Cain. Adam's failure had to do with the fruit. Cain's failure had to do with the fruit. Adam is banished to the east. Cain is banished to the east. You've got to go. You're no longer welcome. Like father, like son. Do you ever think, parents... That your children are going to see your footsteps and they're going to follow. Do you think you can live such an independent life and do whatever you want and play fast and loose with God and your children will totally ignore your lifestyle and they'll grow up to be responsible, God-fearing adults? Now they'll follow your footsteps. I was walking in the snow when I was a young father and my child was following me. It was deep snow. And my child behind me says, guess what, Dad? I'm walking in your footsteps. That'll send chills up and down your back. Because I realized it wasn't just about snow. It's wherever I go, I've got a son that's walking in your footsteps. you got to be careful where you go, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. And you want to curse and swear and act nasty and live a double life and you want your temper to rage you have no self-control you got your nasty habits you got your hidden lifestyle you think your kids are not walking in your footsteps the only hope you have of leading your kids to being a godly righteous man or woman is to be a godly righteous man or woman God said, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And here's the, here's the clincher. If you just do the right thing, you can fix this, Cain. Murdering your brother doesn't fix anything. Being angry doesn't fix anything. Just do the right thing. That is the pointed message today. It doesn't make any difference how you messed up. Sure, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you. Sure, you're going to feel uncomfortable when the sermon is preached. Sure, you're going to have to, 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 to deal with the people you have offended. But just do the right thing. It's fixable. And the enemy's trying to tell you you've messed up and there's no going back and you can't change this. Sure, you can. Back up and do the right thing.
What's so hard about that? God says, Cain, you've got a problem. You think fuming and stewing and plotting, you think God didn't know at this point what Cain was about to do? Of course he did. And God's direction to Cain was, fix it, Cain. Do the right thing. Now, Cain and God knew what the right thing was. We don't know what the right thing was. Get your heart right. Go get the right fruit. Whatever it was, we don't know. Whatever it was, God and Cain knew, and it was very simple to fix. Just do the right thing. And Cain, in essence, if you want to shorten the story, said, I don't want to do the right thing. I want to kill Abel. That will make me feel better. And once again, just like Adam partaking of the tree, you don't know what you're getting into. You don't know what it's going to cost you when you refuse to take God's counsel and just change. Just make the changes. Just make the corrections. Just do the right thing. Fix it. Get it over with. Put it behind you and get on with life. I'd rather kill somebody. And God said, if you don't, Sin is crouching at the door. Now, in the Mesopotamian culture, there was a demon named Rabbis, R-A-B-I-S, that was always pictured as standing behind a door, on the other side of a door. And to enter that doorway would be to cross the threshold where the demon could take you. That was a very common concept. So in using this language, they are relating to the culture of that day. Sin is crouching at the door. Just like this mysterious demon everybody believes in that thinks you go through the wrong door and there's going to be this demon pounce on you. I'm telling you, if you don't do the right thing, if you don't fix this, sin is crouching at the door and it's going to devour you. It's the perfect metaphor for sin. It waits for the opportunity for you to cross over the threshold. Sin, sadly, has been so de-emphasized by our modern culture. There's those cases where we still recognize sin, but people minimize its impact. Oh, it doesn't matter. Everybody's doing it. And everybody seems to be happy. So what does it matter? It matters to God. It matters to you in your life. It matters to you in what in what price you're going to pay that matters. They make sin fun and adventurous and harmless, but it's not the case. In some cases, the concept of sin is completely erased because the idea of sin simply implies that there's an absolute moral standard by which we are judged. But our modern culture hates absolutes. Absolutely. And would rather believe everyone is welcome to do whatever they want without being judged by others. And in the worst case scenario, sin is shamelessly celebrated, flaunted in front of God, daring God to do something about it. But the reality is sin crouches at the door. You cross through that threshold and sin will destroy you. And I don't even think we preach enough about sin and teach enough about sin and talk enough about sin for people today to even understand what sin is. We deal with children on Wednesday night. We deal with children from a variety of home backgrounds. 
But it just never ceases to amaze me how easily these children will lie. It's a, it's, it, they've perfected the art of lying and will lie with pleading eyes. Please believe me, I'm telling you the truth. I saw you do it. Knock it off. Don't give me this song and dance story. You're lying. They don't care. They don't understand lying is a sin. Because everybody lies. It's no big deal. I had two boys running down this aisle and they came down here and they were being rowdy and I tried to settle them down. I said, stop boys, stop, stop, listen to me, stop, stop. And they went down about halfway the aisle here and they tackled one another. They were down on the ground wrestling around. I said, you know, I'm, I'm taking your tickets away because we, we draw tickets on Wednesday night. And now all of a sudden, the story is, I tripped. This worried look on her face. Please believe me, I didn't do anything. I just tripped. I watched the whole thing. People don't understand what sin is. They don't understand the consequences of sin. They don't understand the seriousness of sin. They just sin and they don't care. Sin's crouching at the door. God says to Cain, you've got to leave. You can't stay. You won't stay with your family. You don't respect them. I'm banishing you to the east. Get out of here. And furthermore, you're, you're cursed. You who grew fruit and vegetables, I'm making arrangements right now. You'll never grow another turnip or carrot or beet. You'll never, you'll, you, the ground will not produce for you. Your neighbor, neighbor will have a great garden. You won't be able to raise weeds. Nothing. You can't. You're cursed. Because you killed your brother and his blood infected the ground. And the curse is the ground will never respond to you. You'll never garden again. He didn't know anything else. And Cain at that point says, My, my burden is greater than I can bear. The penalty is too much. What am I going to do? I don't know anything but farming. I don't know, but you're not going to farm anymore. Don't think you're going to move away and farm. You, you can find the richest soil. Your plot will not produce. And people say, what's wrong with Cain? He's cursed. And Cain says, when people find out what I did, they'll want to kill me. And just like God took the skins of the animals and sent his children out and said, you're going to need something. God, in his mercy, gave Cain one bit of merciful concession. He said, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. I'll put a mark on you. It doesn't make a difference what the mark is. Don't even try to figure that out. It's just saying that God made an arrangement with Cain that everybody knew that if they killed Cain, they were going to die too. He said, that, that'll be the best protection I can give you, Cain. People will know you're the man that is cursed and anybody that kills you in retribution then they're going to suffer as well that's it that's that's the best I can give you I hope they f have enough respect for that <laughs> that they don't attempt to kill you good luck when sin is introduced it grows it proliferates innocent people are harmed by your sins not just you if, if it was just you 
And you thought you could go and live any way you wanted to live. And you're the only one that is going to end up in hell because of the way you live. Maybe you can process that. But when you realize your sin impacts a lot of people. Does that make any difference to you? You're not bearing the impact of your sins alone. You're hurting your loved ones. You're hurting your family. You may not care if you're on the highway to hell. But how can you stand the thought of paving the way for your children? The farther our family grows, we've got children. I think I've got my boys on the right path. We've got grandchildren. I'm trying to get them on the right path. When I have great-grandchildren, we're going to lose control over which direction they go. I want the Rooks family from this branch to go to heaven. I want my children to go to heaven. I want my grandchildren to go to heaven. I want my great-grandchildren to preach the gospel and go to heaven. I want my great-great-grandchildren to preach. But you know what? The enemy's going to be there to persuade when I'm long gone. I'm praying over the generations that come from me. But somewhere along the line, there's probably going to arise a murderer. A great-grandson, a great-great-grandson, a great-great-great-grandson. And they're going to get crazy with sin. And I, 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 can't, I can't save them all. But I can do what I can to pass that on to my sons who are going to pass it on to their sons who are going to pass it on to their sons. To keep God at the forefront and keep sin out of their lives. That's the reason it's so important that I pour myself into my children and they become dedicated to sole purpose of pouring themselves into somebody else. That's the reason I don't farm my kids out. I don't farm that job to somebody else. That's my job. And I don't want somebody botching it in my stead. Sin is not to be trifled with. Adam and Eve thought they had something working in their favor. It looked like there was some hope. They had some boys. Little did they realize one of those would grow up and kill the other. They didn't even enter in to the possibilities of what would happen with those two beautiful children. And they had this ray of hope, but the hope was quickly vanished. And one son murders the other, and that son is sent away, and he can't even be with the family anymore. Now they're beginning to feel the impact of the decision to eat that fruit. They're just beginning to sense what it's all about and the pain of sin. Sin lies crouching at the door. Just do the right thing. What's so hard about doing the right thing? Just do it. Quit gambling against sin. You will never win that game. Bow your heads.